0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Tanakh Talks podcast. My name is Rabbi Yaakov Bizi. I'm the Tanakh coordinator at Yeshivat Hesder Leva Torah. I'm the author of the book Nachum Chabakuk Zephar Niaf by Magid Press, just recently released, and since we're coming up to it in 929, if you hadn't had a chance to get a copy, please feel free to go to the Magid Koran Publishing website, or if not, ask me. I'll be glad to send you a signed copy for myself. We're We're podcasting today about the Haftorah for the Shabbat right before Tisha which is called Shabbat Chazon. And it takes its name from the first word of the Haftorah, I guess. Chazon, very good. This is the first chapter of Yeshayahu. We read through the first 27 Psukim. Traditionally, it is done in the tune that we sing of Echa, the slow, mournful tune that we sing of Lamentations on Tisha itself, except for one or two Psukim, And it's always fun on Shabbat to guess which one's the person who's reading the Haftorah is going to read. Now, Yeshua is the largest of the Nevim. There's 66 chapters. It's a huge book. There's an argument whether it's all nechemta, it's or whether it's all Priyanot. Is it all good news or bad news? What's it about? It's very clear that it's a mixture of both, whether he's holds out the hand, the opportunity to create, really do amazing things, that Torah will come up for Jerusalem, people will all gather to Jerusalem, he has these amazing visions of what is possible, the potential for goodness for Israel, for humanity, people should not learn war anymore, what a wonderful vision, pure utopia, but his visions of destruction and the upcoming catastrophe that will befall the Jewish people if they don't listen are as harsh. And people sometimes forget that. And it's quite possible that that's reflected in when he prophesies. And what we're going to do is just take a one-minute summary. He actually goes through four kings. But these four kings are Uzziah, Yotam, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. These four kings span the 8th century before the Common Era. Uzziah is king for 52 years until his great-great-great-grandson, great-great-grandson Menasha, he's going to be the longest reigning king ever. And Dira Yamin describes this tremendous building and growth of the country, something that archaeology has revealed how strong the country's become. David Ben-Gurion, in fact, said, if I want to be like any king, I'd like to be Uzziah, the man who built the Negev up with... Cities and forts, and there's trade and industry and prosperity, and apparently peace. He's doing great, but unfortunately, the success got to his head. Diver Chronicles 2, chapter 26 describes how he goes into the Beit the tries to act like a Kohen Guttel, and of course, gets sarat leprosy, and he's put in isolation for the rest of his life. His son Yotam does a really good job. But his grandson Ahaz, now we're getting into the second half of the 8th century, and of course from 745 onward, the Assyrians come to power, the neo Assyrians, the thousand-year Reich that was actually lasted for a thousand and a half years, they were as cruel and vicious a military machine as everyone's seen, they enslaved local populaces, and there's really, and if you go to London, I remember going to London with my wife right Um, it's six months ago, We're on the way back one day, I want to go see Ninveh. The walls of Ninveh are actually found in the, um, British Museum in London. You can go see these huge murals and you can see here's people being impaled and here's people being thrown in the river and here's people getting their heads cut off. And this is how the kings of Assyria would glorify themselves. This made them look good. Okay. Big, big pictures of themselves and lots of lions, by the way, lions everywhere. They love the lions. Man, the Detroit Lions fans must be, you know, really envious because that it used to be Lions was a symbol of pride. Anyways, along comes the Assyrian kings and Assyrians. When Telugu Peleshart takes power in 745, the largest shadow the world has ever known, or at least the ancient Greece known, falls upon because you just know they're coming for you. It's only a matter of time. Achaz, who's going to reign from 742 to 726, he's going to actually be invaded by his northern. Um, cousins were the kingdom of Israel and the kingdoms of Aram want him to join an anti assyrian coalition and he says, I'm not that stupid. Yeshua says, stay neutral. Unfortunately, he doesn't do that either, but he makes a deal with the king of Assyria and he surrenders the country, buying peace, of course, at the cost of their religious identity and national freedom. His son, Hezquiel, when he takes power, he's already only in power a couple of years when he sees the northern kingdom completely destroyed the... Exile, the destruction of the northern kingdom, the exile of Samaria, and there's nothing left. And for the first several years, he concentrates on rebuilding the Jewish people Jewishly, religiously, rebuilding their relationship with God, and he is so praised by the prophets. But then suddenly he tries to exert his newfound power in political fears as well, i.e. to rebel against Assyria, and that's not going to go well. It seems very clear, by the way, that chapter 1 of Yeshua describes, it's not in chronological order, that chapter 1 in Yeshua actually is written after the Assyrian invasion of 701, because the Assyrians and the Bible both describe the same things, 46 cities captured, they both say it, both in the Assyrian records and in the Tanakh, in the Bible, and only the city of Jerusalem survives. And this is exactly what Yeshua is going to say, as we see here. There apparently is no, this is, place at the beginning, if it's the last prophecy, because this is the summary, this is the opening message, as it were, that the um, Yeshua or the people who put his book into, his messages into book form wanted to know. This is what happens. This is what Yeshua is about. You want to know what Yeshua is about? Read the first chapter. So let's do that. This is our Haftorah. Let's read the first chapter. Let's begin. And a traditional opening is the vision. A vision is something that not necessarily is going to come immediately. It could come in a long period of time. I discuss that in the book. It doesn't matter what it is. And it describes the four kings that we've done above. He is quoting the heavens and earth to be his witnesses. Because God is going to speak about the rebellious children that he has unlike Hosea, unlike Yerim he doesn't use generally the metaphor of God and Jewish people as man and wife, but rather as father and son. And he starts with one of the most fascinating um, parallels that there is. Yadash or koneu v'chamore An ox knows his master, and even the donkey knows at least the, who feeds him. you got to know who he feeds. That's how bad B'nai Israel are. And so in fact, Chaim Luzado makes a very interesting point. Um, sh- sorry, Shmuel Chaim Luzado. He says, you know, if you look where it says that the donkey goes, he doesn't know who feeds him. He, he rather says he knows where he works. He knows who gives him at least something to do. Okay, that the word voos is not the place where the beast feeds with the threshing floor. The text doesn't mean the, the donkey knows where it's eating, but where it's place of work. He understands at least that he has to do something. He has an understanding that he has a purpose in life. He has a goal in life whereas the jewish people so you can see here the degradations the, the ox knows his master he knows who's in charge he doesn't need and it doesn't subscribe to the relationship any further the donkey at least understands that he's been given a purpose or at least he understands who feeds him however you interpret it the jewish people are not even on that level this is the le- lack of gratitude that they have the most fundamental mitzvah the fundamental actually characteristic character trait a person have is to just be grateful be grateful, be thankful for what you have. If you're thankful for what you have, everything else comes together. You begin to say, well, well, who do I have to be thankful for? And you begin, and you learn to not take things for granted, and you learn to be cheerful and happy for what you have, as opposed to being upset in the world that we live in, where everybody is upset because nobody knows. You look around, and there's what they call Facebook envy now. You know, everybody's, you, nobody posts pictures of them sad. Everybody posts pictures of themselves being happy. Look at the great time I'm having, boys and girls. Hey, guys, I'm having more fun than you. It used to be only commercials could make us feel this way. Every good advertisement's goal is to make you feel sad so that you buy the product and you feel better. But now everybody's happy and you don't feel so. So the goal is to be grateful. And the first most fundamental thing, says Yeshua, is be grateful for what you have. You don't even have the fundamental sense of being grateful. It's a very, very powerful message right off the bat. But let's go on. And then he describes the what this has led for the Jewish people. this a simple lack of being grateful to Hashem. Your land is destroyed. All your cities have been burned down. And Jerusalem, Bat Sion, is just like a little hut in a vineyard. It's the only thing that's left. The rest of the country has been destroyed. The Northern Kingdom doesn't exist. The Southern Kingdom, there is no Southern Kingdom. Only the capital city. is like coming out of a bunker after a nuclear war. Okay, it's the only thing that's left. That's all that's left of the... Because you did do this. And the people stand around and they look and they say, We're like Sodom and Amorah, we're completely destroyed. And Yeshua says, you know why you are destroyed like Sodom and Amorah? Well, how do you think you behaved? Listen up, leaders of Sodom and people of Amorah. It's a wonderful, wonderful, I would almost like a Janus parallelism. A Janus parallelism is a, where meanings, where the same word has two meanings. Up until verse 9, Sodom and Amorah is a symbol of destruction and utter complete obliteration. Come verse 10, Sodom and Amorah has another connotation, which you shall. you think you're like Sodom and Amorah? Because you were like Sodom and Amorah. You were destroyed like a Sodom and Gomorrah because you behaved immorally like Sodom and Amorah. By the way, it's an interesting commentary of what the sin of Sodom and Amorah is. Remember, in Jewish thought, they aren't cut up on the, oh, sexual immorality, because that's where the word sodomy comes from. Sodom, right? Sodomy. But look, they threatened to rape together. It's a sexually immoral immoral place. That's not the sin of Sodom and Amorah, at least according to Jewish thought. What is the sin? You can't be hospitable, you can't serve God. Yes, the sexual sins that they want to commit are only to scare off guests from coming. Basically, the problem is social. Basic social taking care of another human being. That was a problem for them. And if that's a problem for them, then you don't deserve to exist. If you can't help another human being, you don't deserve to exist on this planet. That's the lesson of Sidon Amura. And this is what Yeshara was going to say. Now, there's a wonderful description later on describing the corruption that goes through the place. Okay, he talks about that their silver, your coins are dross, meaning they're you know they're completely worthless and why are they worthless? Okay, so this is um the midrash's way, your silver has become dross. Whereas the church comes you know, your silver becomes dross. They used to use coins of of silver, but then they started replacing the silver with copper coins plated in silver. Okay? And then, of course, one of them, and it tells a story about a man who went to a silversmith, but before he goes, the silversmith says, um, you know, the silversmith says, give them coins of copper. He then takes that coins of silver and he uses to pay back the, um, to buy some wine. You know, he pays the silversmith with silver coins covered in copper. He then goes, but then he then takes these coins that he's now so proud. Look, I've got these fake coins. He go gives it to the guy who's selling wine. Ah, here, give me your finest wine. And he gives him fake coins. But of course, says the Midrash, the guy's wine is watered down. It's fake too. Everything's fake. Nobody, Everybody's trying to rip everybody else off. There's no, nothing is real. There's nothing real about the society. It's corrupt and it's horrible. Okay? And, but it's also interesting to note that, um, Yeshua goes after not only after the people, Amam Rabbah, Sodom, he goes after the leadership. This is very much similar to Micha chapter 3, where the whole chapter is an attack on the leadership. He blames the leadership specifically for the trouble that the Jewish people are in. And he describes, Rabbi Yochanan said, you know, a person used to go up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the place of justice. If you needed justice, you go up to Jerusalem. Remember, every one of the kings, you know, had a court, okay? If David Melch would hold court and Avshalom was able to win the people's trust by saying, oh, you poor guy, I'm sorry my father ruled this way. Had I heard the case, I would have ruled in your favor. And Shlomo, you know, this is the king that runs an empire, but two prostitutes off the street can come argue over a child because they can approach the king, because the king's job is to give justice. This is what a king's primary, you know, one of the king's primary functions is. So Cesar of a person used to be would go up to Jerusalem and get justice. Okay, and the judge used to say to him, Oh, you want me to hear you? Well, I'm rather busy right now, but if you bring me two barrels of water and s- chop up some wood for me, I'll be glad to listen to your case. And so it would cost so much money just to get his case listened to that he would go home and the widow would say, so how'd it go? Uh, you know, widow in the neighborhood, I've got a case that I need to... And he says, I'm broke just doing it. And the poor widow has nothing to start with. He says, I can't even go up there. I can't even afford to take part this anymore. The legal class has made it too prohibitive, too expensive to even get justice. And that becomes a sign of corruption. So that's the social corruption that Jerusalem is facing. But there's one specific point I want to talk about. I went from the beginning of the Haftarah to the end of the Haftarah. I want to go now to the middle. Because the middle has really some of the most interesting psukim in the Tanakh. And let's look, listen to them. Okay? It says as follows. God says as follows. I'm going to read it in Hebrew. Okay. Why do I need your korbanot? I hate your korbanot. I don't want them. I don't want them. I've had enough of them. All right. When you come before me, did I ask you to bring korbanot? Okay. I hate your korbanot. Lotus, don't bring me your korbanot for Rosh Chodesh. Don't bring it for Shabbat. Don't bring it for Moadim. I can't deal with this. My soul hates his God. Sananaf nafshi. Okay, I hate them. And I don't want to see them anymore. Wow. What a powerful, powerful attack. And, of course, if I was asking you, well, why is this? So, if you go to secular scholars, let me say, and this is something that was brought on by the um, 19th century Protestant scholars who are trying to show like, some Hegelian progress. We went from rituals and laws to faith and love that there's this progression and these midpoint between the old testament of laws and rules and rituals and the new testament which is all about love and faith and happiness and all these sort of hairy fairy things say the protestant things this is the prophets in the middle you know the also said this you know we're all talking about ritual what about the you know to love other people in fact the show does say this as well it's not an entirely, you know, at first glance, it's an affair. Because he says, what do I want from him if I don't want your korbanot? Purify yourselves, wash yourselves up. You know, I'm quoting just basic things, you know, take care of the widows and the and the orphans and the weak society. Do what's just, be good, be right, do the right thing. And emphasis on the social um, mitzvot, not on the ritual but do we necessarily have to conclude from here that god does not want the ritual that's a bit of a stretch now it may be there are several approaches to this okay well why is this so the first answer as i said which i don't accept is that god doesn't want ritual he only wants proper behavior he only wants social behavior um it's almost like perhaps, you know, like that cheating husband who brings flowers for his wife. Keep that metaphor in mind. The cheating husband who brings flowers for his wife. We're going to come back to that. But obviously, you know, I don't want this. Says um, Ravida of Toulouse, okay, and it's the Magid Mishnah in um, Hilchot Shechem. He says, you know, the first law of refusal by a neighbor, the law of Bar Mitzra, you know, he quotes um, a law of somebody who gives something. The, you know, basically, the Torah is given to give, make a person a person, a better person. He says this, you know, that the Torah's role is assume to you, all right, I want you to become to Tikkun Midot a person should be a better person. And therefore you should do justice and goodness and that's the way you're supposed to trade each other. That's the priority. So it's not that it's abhor against ritual, but the priority is first get your Ben Adam the Ben Adam your interpersonal, your social relations in order and then you come to God. Not that you shouldn't come to God, but you should come to do this. There's another approach, which is that of Rabbi Jacobson. Rabbi Jacobson says something really very fascinating. He says, how do we know which mitzvah is more important? The answer is we don't. We're not supposed to be picking and choosing mitzvah, taking guesses what's more important. But who can do that? The answer is a Navi. Okay, when a Navi comes and says, I'm not happy with X, I want Y, because the Navi knows what Hakadish Baraka is thinking, because he's heard from Hakadish Baraka. He knows what God is thinking, because he's already had the communication. We can't make that decision to decide this is more important than this, but rather this is what the navi Navim teach us. I think the simple answer, however, comes from the Rao and I think we'll finish with this. And the Rao says as follows Korbanot, offering sacrifices. There's communal ones. This is a separate discussion. Okay, We bring a communal offering on behalf of the people one in the morning, one in the afternoon. But the korbanot are really there to bring atonement to purify ourselves from sin. But you can't keep sinning and then say, I'll bring a korban. It's in, the, in the imagery of the rabbinic uh, masters of Chazal, it's like somebody who goes into a mikvah holding a I'm pure object. You can't keep doing the sins and bringing the Korbanot. Better stop sinning. And when you stop sinning and you're making an effort to stop sin, then the Korbanot have value. But until then, don't stop trying to use the Korbanot as a replacement, as a substitute. I, or more importantly, don't believe the corbanot are your get out of jail free card. You're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to keep giving corbanot. Ah, I can sin because I can give a corban. The same way that people would say, you know, as long as I I can buy atonements or indulgences in the Middle Ages, what Luther spoke against, or as long as I say can my Hail Marys and confession and continue to sin, it doesn't work like that. Yes. We make mistakes. And yes, there has to be a mechanism for us to do better. But korbanot are not a get-out-of-jail-free card. So with that thought in mind, and we've looked at the beginning of his show, some very brief, quick ideas. We've talked about the level of corruption that the people were at. We've talked about the time period and what he's trying to do. But most importantly, what does this mean for us, coming into Chishabab? I think it comes back to the basic thing we started with, gratitude, show kindness, to others, a given. But the way to do that, says Yeshua, and that's how he starts off. Just be thankful for what we have. Let's be thankful for everything that's good that happens to us, no matter how hard, no matter how stressful things are. And if we're thankful and appreciative of what we have, we then want that for other people and we'll be good towards other people. And then with, on that basis, we can build our relationship with God as well. Wishing we everybody a Shabbat Shalom.